Okay, welcome uh, everyone to this, uh, this event, uh, a talk, a lecture on occult features of anarchism uh, by Erika Lagalis. And it's, it's my, my pleasure to, to chair this event. My name is Matthijs Feldmans. I'm at the Anthropology Department. Uh, the event itself is hosted by the International Inequalities Institute. Uh, so let me take a few, a little moment to introduce a speaker, Erika. Uh, who is a postdoctoral fellow at, at the International Inequalities Institute. And there she is engaged in a multi-sided ethnographic research project uh, focusing on the social dynamics surrounding conspiracy theory, uh, specifically in, in social movement spaces. And it's also in relation to conspiracy theorizing that the two of us got to know each other. Uh, for example, three weeks ago, we were part of an uh, LSE festival event with the title Conspiracy as Truth, where we try to challenge the usual view of conspiracy theories as, by definition, wacky and untruth and untrue. Um, before Erica came to the LSE, she completed a PhD at, at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, her doctoral thesis was in the field of anthropology, titled Good Politics, Property, Intersectionality, and the Making of the Anarchist Self and explores the anarchist, net, anarchist networks in North America and critically discusses uh, how university-educated Anglo-American leftists uh, distance themselves from their spiritual origins uh, and, and how masculine underpinnings and their embrace of a logic of self-making projects have blinded them to a, a range of inequalities. And both of these interests uh, in anarchism and in conspiracy theorizing are reflected in this talk, and also her first monograph, Occult Features of Anarchism, with attention to the conspiracy of kings and the conspiracy of the peoples. It's a book that asks very important questions. And I'll mention just three very briefly before handing over uh, to Erica. Uh, first, what, what are the mystical roots of political thought, specifically in anarchism, and why have these occult features been marginalized, and with what effects? Second, how do a range of inequalities affect not only the way in which power is experienced and conceptualized, but also how does it affect the circulation of such theories, such, such conceptualizations? Why are some th theories taken more serious than others? And finally, with regards to conspiracy theories, these are usually imagined to be wacky and untrue, but as Legalis, Legalis uh, writes, there is no politics without conspiracy. The question is simply, who is conspiring to do what? And that brings us to the subtitle, The Conspiracy of Kings and the Conspiracy of the Peoples, something I'm looking very much forward to hear more about. So over to you. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you. So the lecture that I'm giving tonight is, um, is also an overview of the book I just published, which you may have seen outside. Um, this book draws attention from different people for different reasons. Some people come to the lecture based on the summary advertised because uh, they have a political or scholarly interest in anarchism. Others are interested in a, my feminist critique of the modern left, and still others are interested in the question of conspiracy theory itself and are curious as to what I might have to contribute to that particular conversation. So I've tried to prepare a little something for everyone. Um, I'll begin by explaining 
um, how I came to pursue the research that led to the book, then give an overview of the book itself and summarize by concluding some of the main scholarly and political interventions of the work and try to leave at least 20 minutes uh, for discussion at the end. Um, Okay, so as Matthias has explained briefly, um, I've come to the topic at hand as an anthropologist. I've explored the historical material in this work based on uh, present-day ethnographic research of anarchist movements today. And this research was itself inspired by my own participation in the global justice movement 20 years ago now. Um, In my undergraduate years at university, I became... I noticed contradictions in the activities of my activist peers, and I became increasingly frustrated with this. I, there was hierarchies along the lines of race, class, and gender were reproduced in these ostensibly non-hierarchical social movement collectives that I was a part of, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in ways that were insidiously subtle. Uh, I decided I was going to write something about it. Um, I decided I'd write my master's thesis about it. Famous last words, uh, 10 years later, I was still fussing over what had become an increasingly sophisticated PhD dissertation, of which this uh, book is, was originally just one chapter. Uh, the dissertation itself... Um, where's my PowerPoint presentation? The dissertation itself, thank you, yeah, I can take from here. Actually, what do I, what do, I do to, um, to the arrow keys? Okay, thank you. Sorry, everybody. Okay. Um, the dissertation itself um, is titled Good Politics, Property, Intersectionality, and the Making of the Anarchist Self, as Matthias said. And when it was finally done, um, it conveyed the results of about 10 years of ethnographic fieldwork among anarchist social movement collectives in Montreal, Canada, where I'm from, um, Mexico City, Oaxaca, Mexico, Caracas, Venezuela, New York, the United States, among other places. The collectives were chosen um, because they were themselves networked together through a variety of collaborative projects. And I discuss in my ethnography how in each context, urban, middle-class, anarchist activists seek to support indigenous people's struggles against resource extraction projects, such as mining, oil drilling, and so forth. So the university student anarchists in both English-speaking and Latin America, in ways both similar and different, um, revere the indigenous activists on the front lines of struggle against neoliberal capitalism. And they want to use their privileges and resources that they have to, to help, either by fundraising for political prisoners or helping these movements gain exposure in the media and so forth. But anarchist, social, uh, anarchist activists are also interested in the question of indigeneity insofar as anarchist society, uh, sorry, insofar as indigenous societies may be constructed as stateless societies, and therefore anarchism in action. Anarchists are, of course, unique among leftists. Um, They differ from Marxists, Leninists, Trotskyists, all the rest, um, in the sense that they are against the state as well as capital. After all, uh, the idea is that capitalists wouldn't be able to exploit us all as much as they do if it weren't for the state, the nation-state's borders, keeping people in place while allowing goods and money to flow freely. So anarchists do not think that a new egalitarian social order will be brought about by 
way of the state or its policies, but rather by way of self-government on the level of autonomous, small-scale, decentralized forms of social organization. And if indigenous societies can be understood as egalitarian and stateless, well, then anarchism isn't a utopian notion, but it's real and possible in the here and now. So how I came to explore the cosmology of anarchism, its unstated theology, both today and throughout history, originally had to do with these present-day ethnographic problematics. It had become clear to me in the process of practical collaborations that anarchist attachments to atheism complicate efforts at anti-colonial solidarity work with indigenous peoples' movements. An important anarchist slogan is, no gods, no masters, right? And yet, some of the indigenous activists with whom anarchists collaborate do not necessarily agree with this formulation. Likewise, it had become clear that gendered constructions of power that characterize anarchist thought and practice, which, like secularism, were also related to the cultural context of the genesis of the modern European left also get in the way of anarchist aspirations to solidarity with all those who suffer forms of domination. I'm going to offer one example from my fieldwork. So early on in my fieldwork in the year 2006, some anarchist collectives in Montreal organized a speaking tour of two indigenous activists from Oaxaca, Mexico, to come to Canada to discuss the struggles of their region. So in community centers, union halls, and campus organizations, Juan and Magdalena described the social movements of which they were a part. Juan spoke of social movements and how indigenous people in his region reject the modern political party. Magdalena, for her part, spoke about her experience as a community health worker, describing how government representatives had tried to persuade her to promote sterilization among the women in her region. She spoke of the need to maintain harmonious ways of life and the need to respect all of God's creations, land, water, animals, people, and so forth. The less questions were directed to her in the discussion period after. And when I asked audience members about why she was not getting as much positive attention, some explained that Magdalena did not seem to have an analysis since she situated her struggle in religious as opposed to political economic terms. She also displayed less experience in politics, apparently, because she had not participated in union movements, but rather worked against the forced sterilization of indigenous women, a distinction clearly based on gender. So later in my first peer-reviewed academic article, I explained that the overlapping effect of two public-private dichotomies, as applied to both sexuality and religion, made it especially difficult for her listeners to understand her as political. This conjuncture was no coincidence, I argued. Secularization in the West privatizes religion during the same historical process and by way of the same logic that it privatizes the sexual. The disqualification of religion from the modern left and its feminization were one and the same, with each dichotomy serving to reinforce the other. I suggested that more attention to both current and historical correspondences of secularism, colonialism, and gender could benefit both scholarship on left politics and also anarchist solidarity activism itself. Now, responses to this work by both academic and my activist readers held to a certain pattern. Most were happy to admit that we must pay more attention, generally speaking, and regarding my question of anarchist atheism, most agreed that, yes, we should be more respectful of indigenous identity. 
And this last continually disturbed me, actually, because I thought I'd taken care to emphasize that the problem goes beyond a failure to be sufficiently polite in the presence of difference. Beyond being disrespectful, the modern Western insistence on a mechanical universe delimits the radical imaginary most generally. To refrain from telling the non-atheist activists that they are wrong while continuing to think they are, um, just because the person speaking is a person of color, is entirely different than deconstructing the colonial mentality that treats the religious as other in the first place. It was, after all, in the context of the colonial encounter that Christians had granted other communities and traditions the name it had always kept for itself, religion, while reincarnating itself as secular. But my activist readers, they hadn't heard me. Um, I'd have to try again, I thought. Uh, This time I'd hold up for detailed examination the specific metaphysical premises embodied in the modern Western definitions of politics and theology of modern revolution so that anarchists would understand that they have a cosmology too. Um, However much they may be inclined to obfuscate this fact by claiming exclusive purchase on rational analysis and secular politics. So I go back to the library, um, and in the course of my subsequent studies, um, I discover that any inquiry into the cosmology of the modern revolutionary left necessarily stumbles across institutions like Freemasonry, among other clandestine fraternities. Now, was it wise, I wondered, to highlight the association of anarchism with charged topics like Freemasonry, given all of the intrigue in mainstream pop culture about secret societies and their role in contemporary politics? You know, would my own professors think I'd fallen down the rabbit hole, so to speak? Um, I hesitated, I did. Um, but ultimately, another set of experiences I had within an activist collective around the same time helped me decide that pursuing this line of study was important. The collective in question was one of the groups that helped organize the speaking tour of Juana Magdalena from Oaxaca that I just discussed. It was a Zapatista solidarity collective involving both Mexican and Quebecois activists in Montreal. Um, The Zapatistas being a rebel indigenous group in Mexico that's been very inspirational for many in the global north. So one day when uh, we're chatting after a collective meeting, One member lamented how we had organized demonstrations, we'd fundraised for political prisoners, we'd organized this transnational speaking tour, among other things, but, you know, we were still terribly ineffective compared to those in power. Those guys are really organized, he says. And I said, I said, what do you mean? Because he'd suddenly spoken in this quiet, ominous tone as if referring to something beyond the obvious fact that governments have armies and we don't. And, And the conversation proceeded to meander at that point around uh, international trade agreements, global banking, the Knights Templar, Freemasonry, and so on. Um, And when one of the people in the conversation mentioned that all of these powerful global elites in question are Jewish, uh, two of us stopped him and we were like, well, even if there are secret ritual fraternities decorating the capitalist class, is it really reasonable to think that everyone involved is of the same religious persuasion? But apparently the conversation was not, you know, the question wasn't to be settled in the space of an hour. And I myself decided I would read the sources that they were recommending so that I could have a comeback with an informed argument next time. One had mentioned a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, Others had recommended certain videos on YouTube, which was a relatively new uh, phenomenon at the time in 2006. And uh, before long, I myself was 
spending hours watching videos on the secret order of the Illuminati and the legends of the Sphinx and how the Fibonacci number series is built into sacred Egyptian buildings. And, and uh, you know, it was very entertaining. And as an anthropologist, I found it fascinating to observe how the technology of YouTube encouraged the viewer to watch certain videos on the basis of others, thus inviting further semantic connections among and within the video contents. And I realized I was conducting a sort of auto-ethnographic research study of being at once the viewer of YouTube videos and the viewer of my own and others' YouTube viewing. Um, meanwhile, I continued to discuss the question of global conspiracy with my peers. And you may be relieved to hear that I did finally convince my comrade that powerful capitalists and Jews are not the same thing. Um, there's a certain folk sociological account of conspiracy theories that suggests that these are only attractive to small-minded people looking for a simple and therefore satisfying explanation for global exploitation. <clears throat> the conspiracy theorist is also imagined to be politically apathetic, like if magic-wielding lizards are in charge, there's no point organizing against it kind of thing. Um, basically, according to many educated elites, Conspiracy theorists are all uneducated white men who are socially unengaged except for ranting into their keyboards. You know. And uh, this may sometimes be the case, um, but some of the first conspiracy theorists that I met were educated Mexican men who were active members of a Zapatista collective. They weren't white, they weren't politically apathetic, and while one of them was originally attached to anti-Semitic theories of modern banking, following debate he was willing to reconsider his theory of history. So some like to say that there's no point in trying to critically engage conspiracy theorists and reason conversation, um, but sometimes I wonder if progressive elites are not themselves being a bit irrational or perhaps holding on to a crude stereotype of conspiracy theorists to justify a comfortable routine of disengagement, wherein the public sphere is increasingly ridden with anti-Semitic theories of global conspiracy, but it's not worth trying to try and change people's minds. Now, reason debate or a book like mine may not be sufficient to turn devoted neo-Nazis away from their project, but it might influence the future actions of people sitting on the fence, so to speak, and maybe when it comes to fighting the rise of neo-fascism, every strategy is worth trying. In other words, I decided to pursue my study of anarchist cosmology, necessarily exploring the relation of anarchism with sensationalized topics like Freemasonry and the Illuminati, precisely because they are sensationalized. Uh, the result would be a book with a dual purpose. I could clarify the history of left politics for those intrigued by the question of secret societies at the, at the same time as I challenge present-day anarchist attachments to secular analyses in which anarchist theology is simply displaced and mystified, my original scholarly interest. Today's anarchist activists may maintain that they are against all forms of domination, but a decolonized anarchism that properly challenges gendered power requires acknowledging how the secularization of social movements against the state mirrors the secularization of the colonial modern state itself, which privatizes religion and gender, yet continues to embody a specific cosmology and patriarchal arrangement in its structure and ideology. Or in other words, conspiracy theorists may sometimes be stubborn white men, but then again, so are anarchists, um, who are often attached to some frustrating theories of power as well. I'm going to move to the historical material now. There we go. 
So standard histories of modern anarchism often locate its precursors in the social movements that challenged the enclosures of private property and forced labor during the feudal period and early capitalist order, such as the Anabaptists, ranters, diggers, and so on. These movements often called for communal ownership in Christian idiom by elevating grace over works, for example. But their form was different than the Christian millenarian movements that had preceded them. Millenarian movements were spurred on by a charismatic individual or momentous event, whereas these new heretic movements had defined organizational structures and programs for change. What happened to affect the shift? And what does it mean that anarchist historians easily recognize such movements as anarchists when they're located safely in the past as precursors, yet as soon as modern anarchism proper is articulated, such religious leveling movements are seen as backward, if not heretical to anarchism itself. The shift from spontaneous millenarian movements to the organized heretic one had partly to do with non-Christian ideas and mystical doctrines that began circulating in Europe during the Crusades. Platonic philosophy, Pythagorean geometry, Islamic mathematics, Jewish mystical texts, and hermetic treatises were all rediscovered via Muslim Spain and translated into Latin during this time. It is well known that the creative recomposition of this ensemble inaugurated the Renaissance and later the Enlightenment on the level of high culture, but how the composite led to new leveling projects from below has received less attention. The Hermetica in particular is probably the least recognized fount of the modern left, yet an important thread running through it. The Corpus Hermeticum is a collection of texts written in the first or second centuries AD, yet during the Renaissance they were held to be the work of Hermes Trismegistus, imparting the mystical insights of ancient Egypt. Egypt was said to be the original civilization, one that nourished the philosophy of the Greeks, for example. So the discovery of these texts was especially prized. The Hermetic tradition beholds a cosmic time characterized by a pulsation of emanation and return, and a unified universe of which man is a microcosm, as above, so below. The Hermetic cosmos is hierarchically arranged in in symmetrical, diachronic and synchronic bifurcations and trifurcations, while a web of hidden correspondences, as well as forces, energy or light, cut across and unify all levels. In duration, everything remains internally related. All is one. Humanity is held to participate in the regeneration of cosmic unity, and our coming to consciousness of this divine role is a crucial step therein. God and creation are thus one and the same, with the inevitable slip that our creative and intellectual power is also divine. Yet the initiate must first purge himself of false knowledge in order to be able to receive the true doctrine. At any given moment, only some are ready. Hermes explains himself that he keeps the meaning of his words concealed from those who are not. The Hermetica has proved adaptable to a variety of projects. Its neat metaphysical geometry, which arrived alongside algebra and the Pythagorean theorem, helped form a composite that lent itself to a massive investment in mathematical forms and understanding. Mathematics became the hidden architecture of the cosmos, the most permanent and basic truth. And revelation of these secrets did permit an ability to build in ways never before imagined, providing both vaulted cathedrals and calculus, for example. 
a variety of mystical doctrines proliferated from the interaction of this composite with pre-existing natural philosophy, alchemy being perhaps the most famous. A hermetic logic can also be discerned in Eckhartian mysticism, Paracelsism, the mathematics of John Dee, the arts of Raymond Lowell, Rosicrucianism, vitalism, and more, um, all of which behold secret cosmic correspondences and sacred architecture, sacred geometry, sorry, and which inspired the scientific revolution of the Enlightenment. Calculus was the result of Newton's search for the philosopher's stone, his theory of ether, her hermetic cosmogony, and the language of science. The conceptual vocabulary of his physics, like attraction and repulsion and so forth, was adopted via the hermeticist Bohm, via the alchemist Henry Moore. The, the basic point here with these very few, very quick examples is just that the disenchantment tale of the Enlightenment is, is simply that. It's a tale. Uh, the persecution of magic and witches during this period um, is rather best understood as a disciplinary measure directed specifically at the peasantry and at women especially insofar as it served to enforce the logic of private property, wage work, and the transformation of women into producers of labor. As explained in the work of Silvia Federici, for example, fears around a declining population and the reproductive autonomy of lower-class women was what distinguished the witch from the Renaissance magician who demonologists consistently passed over. In fact, the alleged devilish activities of the baby-killing witch were often plagiarized from the high magical repertoire. The Hermetica was also fundamental to the emergence of new social movements against systemic power, specifically Freemasonry and the revolutionary brotherhoods that proliferated during the 18th and 19th centuries. Unlike the millenarian and heretic movements before them, these social movements consisted of literate radicals and were decisively masculine public spheres. Women's status within the heretic movements was always ambiguous, of course, but women were actively involved. Uh, to put it perhaps bluntly, uh, Freemasonry is what social movements look like after the witch hunts, just as court alchemists, court alchemists played at the creation of life while the state worked to arrest feminine control over biological creation, speculative masonry emerges in which elite males worship the grand architect upon the ashes of artisans' guilds while real builders are starving. By the establishment of the Grand Lodge in London in 1717, the trade secrets of operative masons had become the spiritual secrets of speculative ones. Lodge membership now thoroughly replaced by literate men lured by the ceremony, ritual, and a secret magical history, supposedly dating back to the time of King Solomon and the grand architect of his temple, Hiram Abif. Freemasonry is always involved in magnificent like, pastiche of hermetic and Kabbalistic lore. Right? One hermetic aspect of Masonic cosmology that is key for our discussion is the notion that man and society tend toward perfection. The work of Spinoza was also, together and separately, an inspiration in this regard. In his theological political treatise, Spinoza equipped contemporary European radicals with a dynamic philosophy that unified and divinized the universe, providing a new religious vision and renovated foundation for social resistance at once, which contemporaries named pantheism. 
This word, apparently first on record in the usage of John Toland, was taken up during the period in question to refer to a metaphysics that re-emphasized the vitalistic spirit and matter qualities of nature and tended to deify the material order in the process. A new faith in scientific progress encouraged the conception of temporal institutions as permanent and through which fantasies of progress could be enacted. A new heaven on earth would be manifest through the works of men themselves. The Traité des Trois Imposteurs, or the Treatise on the Three Impostors, that Masons circulated clandestinely during the 18th century, refers to Moses, Jesus, and Mohammed as the three impostors in question. Yet the group who printed it included Toland, who in his pamphlet Pantheisticon, 1720, elaborated a new ritual that claimed to combine the traditions of Druids and ancient Egyptians and included the following call and response. All things in the world are one, and one in all in all things. What's all in all things is God, eternal and immense. Let us sing a hymn upon the nature of the universe. So Masons imagine themselves the creators of a new egalitarian social order and protagonists of cosmic regeneration at once, all articulated in the language of sacred architecture. Their society was anti-clerical, yet espoused the pantheism that infused their social leveling project with sacred purpose. Theirs was an initiatic society of rising degrees and reserved secrets, but one in which all men met upon the level. The Masonic leveling project was not altogether radical. Um, it's true that Masonic lodges were frequented by elite men who instrumentalized them to further consolidate their power. The Masonic project was one of limited reforms, one to which Jews, women, servants, and manual laborers were denied entry. At the same time, the Masonic ideal of merit as the only fair distinction did allow room to critique the tension between formal ideals and actual practice, such that Masonic lodges were the first public association in 18th century Britain to take up the question of, to take up the workers' question um, by founding hospices, schools, and assistance centers. In pre-revolutionary France, lodges first began accepting small artisans than proletarian workers, lowering fees, abolishing the literacy requirement, and so forth. And by 1789, the time of the revolution, there was between 20 and 50,000 members in 600 lodges, and it was no longer possible for participants to reasonably claim that they were manifesting an egalitarian social order simply by meeting to discuss literature and science and cultivating Masonic wisdom. It's here that we arrive at the question of the conspiratorial uh, revolutionary brotherhoods that's been exploited in paranoid intrigue. So on the one hand, um, due to the utopian rhetoric developed in the Masonic public sphere, public sphere, some members became directly involved in revolutionary activities, both in France before the revolution and as well as through Europe in the years immediately following. On the other hand, it is true that many revolutionaries who were not necessarily Masons made use of the Lodge's existing infrastructure and social networks to further their cause. Yet others simply adopted Masonic iconography and organizational style, which had accrued a measure of symbolic power and legitimacy uh, when developing their own revolutionary associations. 
it is not possible to distinguish entirely between these phenomena in retrospect, the salient point being that the revolutionary brotherhoods that proliferated at the turn of the 19th century derived much of their power from their association with perennial secrets and magical power, and that this imaginary and their related style of organization were fundamental to the development of what we come to recognize as modern revolutionism. Adam Weishaupt, a young Bavarian professor who founded the Illuminati in 1776, was one of few convinced egalitarians of his day. His revolutionary agenda involved the dismantling of the state, church, and the institution of private property, all justified with creative reference to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Eleusinian mysteries and organizationally inspired by the Pythagorean mystery school. According to Weishaupt, our true fall from grace was our submission to the rule of government. Yet, quote, do you really believe it would be useful, he asked, as long as countless barriers still remain to preach to men a purified religion, a superior philosophy, and the art of self-government? Should not all these organizational vices and social ills be corrected gradually and quietly before we may hope to bring about this golden age? And wouldn't it be better, in the meanwhile, to propagate the truth by way of secret societies? Do we not find traces of the same secret doctrine in the most ancient schools of wisdom? For Weishaupt, the imminent revolution of the human spirit would break the chains of tyranny, yet repressive political conditions required a discreet revolutionary elite in the meantime. Weishaupt had joined a Masonic lodge in 1774, but left shortly after, unsatisfied with the level of critique that he found within. A year after founding his more radical group, however, the members together decided in 1777 to join lodges once more in order to gain new recruits, and the strategy did work. The Illuminati grew from Weishaupt and five students in 1776 to 54 members in five Bavarian cities by 1779, and eventually extended to Italy, Lyon, and Strasbourg to include figures such as Mozart and Herder. The pyramid structure of the network, modeled on Masonic form, was organized into three grades and became both an agency for the transmission of commonplace Enlightenment ideas and a quasi-religious sect at once, one in which men met to contemplate the utopian regeneration of society. Its growth was short-lived, however, because in 1783, a second-grade member quit unhappy and shared its ideas with his employer, a duchess of the Bavarian royal family. Ensuing suspicions that the Illuminati were connected with an Austrian plot to annex the electorate alarmed the government and a repressive campaign began. By the end of the 18th century, government propaganda vilifying the Illuminati and the Freemasons, who were all supposedly all under its control, uh, was in full force. So fearing the death penalty, members went into hiding or exile. The turn of the century did see a proliferation of other revolutionary societies across Europe that mimicked the forms of Freemasonry and the Illuminati, including the Carbonari, the Massinians, Le Monde, and many others. It did make certain practical sense to organize in a clandestine fashion, as following the French Revolution, the feudal dynasties of Russia, Austria, Prussia, Italy, and Spain, with powerful allies in all European countries and, and in the Catholic Church, um, had formed their own international organization. 
pledging themselves to forcible action in any state where monarchs felt threatened by revolutionary inroads, in the words of Tsar Nicholas. These conservative government powers formalized themselves as the Holy Alliance of the Congress of Vienna in 1814 and proceeded to cooperate in international publication bans, surveillance and repression of militants. This obviously posed serious problems for people in the workers' movement. To suggest the prevailing political mood, consider the Fraternal Democrats' reply to the Brussels Democrats, then led by Karl Marx. Um, it, this is in 1846. Quote, Marx will tell you with what enthusiasm we welcomed his appearance in the reading of your address. We recommend the formation of a democratic congress of all nations, and we are happy to hear that you've publicly made the same proposal. The conspiracy of kings must be answered with the conspiracy of the peoples. In other words, the pyramid structure of the revolutionary organizations in which each level would know only its immediate superiors clearly had a practical function insofar as it protected revolutionaries from repression if one were to be caught and tortured for information on the others, for example, in this era of increasingly consolidated state power, surveillance, and repression. The resemblances were not necessarily due to ex-Illuminati members starting up new groups, but rather partially due to the fearful accounts thereof propagated by governments at the time, which had the ironic effect of inspiring others to try the strategy. But the specific organization and ritualization of all of this revolutionary activity clearly had other functions as well. The brotherhoods affirmed and unified the aspirations of illuminated men whose purpose it was to steer mankind towards achieving perfection on this earth. Anarchist forefather Mikhail Bakunin, 32nd degree Mason himself, appeared to feel the same calling when he founded his own secret international brotherhood in Florence in 1864 that mirrored Weishaupt's vision almost exactly 100 years later. The main difference between them was that Bakunin's brotherhood was meant to infiltrate the first international and wrest it from Marxist control as opposed to infiltrate Masonic lodges in order to wrest them from liberals' control. By this time, the mid-19th century, the use of Masonic organizations as a cover for revolutionary activity was now a long tradition as was the tendency to use Masonic rites, customs, and icons to symbolize the values of equality, solidarity, fraternity, and work. The British lodges had come to support the workers' struggle to the extent that the first preparatory meeting of the International Working Men's Association, or IWA, in 1862, attended by Karl Marx, among others, was held in the Freemasons' Tavern. Many of those in attendance were socialist Freemasons, a phrase applied at the time to members of the small lodges founded by exiled French Republicans, and which involved many members of diverse national backgrounds. They were called the Memphite Lodges, named after the sacred Egyptian burial ground. The objectives of the Memphite program were twofold. The struggle against ignorance through education and helping the proletarians in their struggle for emancipation by way of mutual aid associations. Many present at the time observed that the incipient IWA's organizing power was so weak that if it were not for the organizing efforts of the socialist Freemasons, the official founding meeting of the IWA wouldn't have happened. Communist and anarchist symbolism, such as the Red Star and the Circle A, date back to this period and also have Masonic associations 
The star, which hosts a charge of esoteric meanings in both the Hermetic and Pythagorean traditions, had been adopted in the 18th century by Freemasons to symbolize the second degree of membership in their association, that of compañero or camarade or comrade in English. Among socialists, it was first used by members of the Memphite lodges and then the IWA. Regarding the Circle A, early versions like this 19th century logo of the Spanish locale, the middle image, uh, the Spanish locale of the IWA, um, are clearly composed of the compass, level, and plumb line of Masonic iconography, with the compass and level arranged to form the letter A inside of a circle. This image on the right here is a zine published in Montreal in, in 2013. Um, so anarchism continues to involve a certain faith or hope, right? And now, does the author realize that this is likely a reference to the same plumb line? Very possibly not. Um, over time, these symbols have developed a new complement of meanings. Many anarchists today don't know that the star used by communist anarchists and Zapatistas alike is the pagan pentagram, nor do they necessarily realize that there's a genealogical link between the neo-pagan May Day celebration and today's anarchist May Day marches. In the 19th century, however, these symbolic associations were well known by those involved, and their adoption reflected how much they resonated with mystical and historical weight. Even Bakunin, while he did reject the personal god of his Russian Orthodox childhood, once wrote, quote, If religion and an inner life appear in us, then we become conscious of our strength, for we feel that God is within us, that same God who creates a new world, a world of absolute freedom and absolute love. That is our aim. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, another anarchist forefather and mason who lived to see the formation of the IWA, wrote that, quote, the Masonic God is neither creator, father, logos, love, or redeemer. God is the personification of universal equilibrium. Now, throughout the 19th century, the only people involved in the revolutionary scene who were consistently annoyed by this sort of mysticism were Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Proudhon's rambling about God as universal equilibrium was the sort of thing Marx and Engels contrasted with their own brand of scientific socialism. In Engels' words, quote, the French reject philosophy and perpetuate religion by dragging it over with themselves into the projected new state of society. Bakunin and Marx differed on this point and a number of others, the most famous being the role of the state in the revolutionary movement whereas Marx considered a state dictatorship of the proletariat to be a necessary moment in his historical dialectic, Bakunin espoused the notion of a secret revolutionary organization that would, quote, help the people towards self-determination without the least interference from any sort of domination, even if it be temporary or transitional. Bakunin also wrote that he saw our only salvation in a revolutionary anarchy directed by a secret collective force. Quote, we must direct the people as invisible pilots, not by means of any visible power, but rather through a dictatorship without ostentation, without titles, without official right, which in not having the appearance of power will therefore be more powerful. Members of his international brotherhood were to act as, quote, lightning rods to electrify them with the current of revolution, precisely to ensure that this movement and this organization should never be able to constitute any authorities. So the dictatorial power of this anti-authoritarian organization only represents a paradox if we do not recognize the long tradition and larger cosmology in which Bakunin is working. Revolution 
may be imminent in the people, but the guidance of illuminated men working in the occult was necessary to guide them in the right direction. Beyond Bakunin himself, uh, Robert Owen, Charles Fourier, among others, are also often cited as forefathers in standard histories of anarchism. The Owenites were distinctly anti-clerical, attacking all forms of religion, but Owen himself was a spiritualist in admiration of Emmanuel Swedenborg, who taught the arrival of an internal millennium. Charles Fourier, for his part, based his political project on what he called the Law of Passional Attraction, a series of correspondences in nature that maintain harmony in the universe and could be applied to human society. Both Fourierists and Owenites advocated the creation of new forms of independent organization within the existing system, hence their precursor status to anarchism, perennially defined by the notion of building a new world within the shell of the old, whether via networks, communes, or syndicates. Darwin's treatise on evolution, also partaking in or contributing to the zeitgeist, involved series of social change that dovetailed with this revolutionary thought. The insight that the natural world was characterized by evolving beings resonated strongly with the concept of cosmic regeneration. Adaptive, adaptive process easily becomes progress, a tendency towards perfection. And debates about teleology have long characterized uh, evolutionary biology like, ever since. Many 19th century thinkers extended this idea from plants and animals to human society. The most famous version of such a move being social Darwinism, traceable to Herbert Spencer, who was the actual author of the phrase survival of the fittest. Here Darwin is recuperated to lend weight to the Hobbesian conception of the state of nature, the war of all against all so convenient to capitalist ideology. But anarchist natural philosophers of the 19th century read Darwin differently. Kropotkin, for example, posited mutual aid as a prime factor of evolution, which we the people may manifest as we lead civilization toward egalitarian harmony. Hermetic tropes continue to abound, Kropotkin himself being heavily influenced by Mechnikov, for example, who had written of the world being divided into three spheres, inorganic, biological, and sociological, each governed by its own set of laws, but with enough correspondences between them that human society could be read as a continuously evolving expression of a unified whole. The theosophy of Elena Pavlova Blavatsky, uh, which intrigued many anarchists of the 19th century, also involves a teleology of divine evolution represented by successive root races and whose finality was cosmic union. Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace, who was a theosophist and anarchist himself, admired Fedorov, who wrote that the common task of humanity was to resurrect its dead fathers from particles scattered in cosmic dust. Union organizer and early feminist Annie Passant, who fought to open the Masonic lodges to women, was convinced she was the reincarnation of Giordano Bruno. It was theosophy that inspired her to fight for home rule in India, as well as how she met Jawaharlal Nehru, himself a member of the Theosophical Society. Further examples from the anarchist diaspora in the 19th century include the story of Greek utopian socialist Plotino Radicanati, who was often credited as being the first European proselytizer of anarchism to arrive in Mexico. His first task upon arrival was to draft pamphlets titled Neopantheismo, or Neopantheism, published in 1864, 
uh, while working with Julio Chavez Lopez to stir up rebellion in the Chalco Valley. Fifty years later, the politics of the now iconic Ricardo Flores Magón were immortalized in his newspaper titled Regeneración, or Regeneration, while his comrades called each other co-religionaries. Further south, Agosto Cesar Sandino of Nicaragua, who later became the icon of the Sandinista Revolution in the 1980s, was himself enthralled by theosophy and Zoroastrian, Hindu, and Kabbalist lore, fusing all of these ideas together with communist ones. And I do lack the time here to treat so many complex stories of uh, colonial encounters with the attention to specificity that they deserve. Um, but I do present these few examples quickly to suggest that the cross-pollination of diverse cosmologies underlying modern revolutionism doesn't necessarily stop and perhaps only finds its latest expression in present-day anarchist selective fascination with indigenous cultures and cosmologies. Um, not every anarchist was a theosophist or enamored with the occult, of course. Um, Emma Goldman, for example, wrote an entirely scathing account of Krishnamurti's arrival in America as a supposed theosophical avatar. Um, but the fact that Goldman's paper, Mother Earth, bothered to criticize theosophy at all should tell us something. Nothing is forbidden unless enough people are doing it in the first place. Um, even skeptics often grudgingly admitted that these spiritualists, quote, have ensured, for one thing, a wide diffusion of tendencies ripe for anarchistic use. Scratch a spiritualist and you will find an anarchist, wrote C.L. James in 1902. And it was none other than the president of the American Association of Spiritualists that published the first English translation of the Communist Manifesto in 1872. And uh, we can imagine how much this might have annoyed Marx, um, but Marx's anticipation of a communist era after the overthrow of capitalism, brought about by a mixture of willful effort and inbuilt cosmic fate, isn't actually that different from the idea of an unfolding new age. The major difference, and one that prompted Marx and Engels to distinguish their utopian vision as scientific compared to the others, was their notion of the dialectic, which preserved the form, if not content, of the Hegelian one. Hegel's dialectic cast history as a dynamic manifestation of the idea, the unfolding of consciousness itself, in which everything is but an attribute of a single universal substance. Hegel's logic features an obsession with emanation and return by way of neat geometrical constructions of all kinds, while in his phenomenology of spirit, the idea issues in nature, which issues in spirit, which returns to idea in the form of absolute spirit. This triangle over here, um, adorned with alchemical notations, that's from Hegel's notes. Now, Marx uh, famously breaks from Hegel in that his consciousness is held to follow from material social processes rather than posited as a first premise. Um, however, the material and the ideal remain indissoluble. His logic is dialectical, and his historical dialectic resonates with Christian as well as hermetic eschatology as much as Hegel's. And while one of the main defining attributes of anarchism is its anti-Marxism, many hermetic features of Marxist thought remain preserved as abstract content as well as transcended within anarchism's concrete form. And that's an inside joke for the Hegelians in the room because I couldn't help myself. Um, yeah. The fact that Marx builds on Hegel who builds on the Hermetica, it doesn't, it doesn't mean they're wrong. Um, 
It just means that a vast amount of rational social theory relies on archetypes and geometries of thought stemming from a specific historically situated cosmology, as of course does the notion of rationality itself. So socialism and occultism developed in complementary as well as dialectical fashion during the 19th century. Um, yet a cosmological, the cosmological grounding of 19th century anarchist politics is now generally downplayed in retrospect. Just as Newton's alchemy is largely ignored in mainstream histories of the establishment, so Fourier's law of passional attraction is rewritten in mainstream histories of the left as, quote, a harmonious society based on the free play of passions. It seems that as Marxist scientific socialism became hegemonic during the 20th century for all of the complex reasons that it did, um, the theological dimension of modern revolutionism was buried from popular and academic consciousness of the left. Throughout the 20th century, occult philosophy has often been cast as comforting in anxiety-provoking periods of social change, much like conspiracy theories now held to do. Or in certain Marxian style, occultism is cast as a product of capitalist alienation. In Adorno's Theses Against Occultism, in which he makes ample use of Hegel somewhat ironically, occultism is both, quote, a primitive holdover and a consequence of commodity fetishism at once. In a typical circular and colonialist argument that suggests the occult worldview is wrong because it's animistic and vice versa, like a regression to magical thinking. E.P. Thompson, for his part, characterized the working class as oscillating between the poles of religious revivalism and radical politics. Over and over, occult philosophy is portrayed as either inducing apathy among the masses or as the territory of elite reactionaries who stir them to hatred, instead of having any connection to socialism, communism, or anarchism. The mobilization of Blavatsky's theosophy by eugenicists, for example, and the association of occult narratives and iconography with the rise of fascism uh, is often pointed out, and of course those connections are there. Occult philosophy does not necessarily lead to revolutionary politics, but it doesn't necessarily lead away from them either. When regarding the relationship of magic to anti-systemic movements, perhaps any deterministic formula is bound to fail. When approached by privileged persons with a lust for power, magic can serve to justify and advance elite aspirations. But without the influx of so much material charged as ancient spiritual magical wisdom that helped triangulate popular religion, modern materialism, and social discontent in new ways, we may never have seen the rise of modern socialism and anarchism. Even this very quick glance at the history of revolutionism problematizes any simplistic dichotomy of New Age spirituality as reactionary in the sense of both conservative and right-wing versus materialist worldview as progressive in the sense of both forward-looking and leftist. Rather, secularized or scientized religion appears inherent to modern anti-systemic critique and collective action. The modern West's attempt to save itself from its mechanized universe through a newly reconfigured enchantment 
we're in a rejection of material exploitation, materialist values, and a mechanical universe appears three sides of the same coin. So as I explained at the outset, um, I began this project partly to, in order to clarify how the atheism professed by those working in the Western anarchist tradition today intersects with colonialism, as well as suggests a misunderstanding of the history of anarchism itself. Uh, maintaining a neat dichotomy between spirituality and radical politics only makes sense within a colonialist rubric wherein the religious other becomes a constitutive limit of the rational West. The fact that leftists are often unable to recognize the subversive potential of religious sensibilities, whether those of indigenous women or Bakunin himself, um, is disturbing beyond leftist failure to respect others' difference. And to recuperate such a debate within the parameters of identity and attendant proprieties is arguably racist in and of itself. When Entire cosmologies are reified as proper only to specific preordained identities. We are effectively saying they are false to the extent that they do not apply across the cosmos whatsoever. The sacred is thus rendered as alterity, nothing more than a cultural accoutrement in a marketplace as big as the universe. Appropriating indigenous spiritual forms without the intended content is, of course, entirely in, the line, in line with the logic of capitalist colonialism. But so is marking off and containing everything considered sacred as property and thus nothing more. Um, I also suggested in my introduction that the story told here is important to reflect on because while the patriarchal bias of classical anarchist theory and practice is often noted in reference to its genesis in male proletarian workers' movements, the gendered quality of anarchism is arguably more fundamental than that. The masculine public sphere of anarchism reaches back even further and articulates with an occult cosmology that is older still. As anti-systemic resistance in Europe shifted from the millenarian mode to modern socialism, the biggest difference was not, in fact, that the former was religious and the latter wasn't, but rather that in the latter, the paradise of heaven would be manifest on earth and through the works of men, not God, or indeed men as God, and that it was a job of few chosen brothers who had access to ancient spiritual wisdom circulating in secret fraternities to inspire them to action. So to simply argue now that real anarchism is by definition feminist insofar as anarchism is theoretically against all forms of domination does not engage the ways in which the anarchist revolutionary person was constructed vis-a-vis -a, -vis a variety of exclusions from the outset, especially insofar as these continue unmediated by a certain unacknowledged vanguardism. Revolution may be imminent in the people, but as anyone who has met anarchists living today can see, uh, fluency in a particular vocabulary, knowing the names of certain historical figures, and being vouched for by someone in the know is all requirement for entry into the anarchist club, as is a commitment to a specific ideological constellation informed by the history of its practice, wherein men's oppression by the state becomes the prototype for power in general. I may be forcing an analogy uh, by saying that all of this social and subcultural capital resembles an opaque system of signs, a 
of 19th century initiatic societies, but the hidden correspondence is worth reflecting on. Along these lines, unless we narrowly define vanguard to mean political party per se, the common idea among present-day anarchist activists that Marxists are vanguardist, whereas anarchists are not, does not bear scrutiny. Anarchists have always considered themselves purveyors of particular insight and continue to join social movements and enter the fray, generally speaking, to steer things in a more revolutionary direction. For example, I once wrote an editorial piece um, about how anarchists participated in the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011-2012, uh, despite its unimpressive reformist aspects, um, precisely to prevent it from veering in a possibly racist and nationalist direction and to steer it towards a liberatory politics. My point is not to criticize such a practice, but to suggest that its disavowal within discourses of mere solidarity may be disingenuous. Similarly, while anarchists today carefully skirt the phrase consciousness raising because it sounds too Marxist, their anti-oppression workshops appear to have precisely such a purpose. While there are obviously significant differences between contemporary anarchist practices and those of the 18th century Illuminati, there are also similarities. It is in the writing of Weishaupt that we see one of the first recorded references to the phrase self-government a favorite slogan among anarchists up to the present day, who also generally consider themselves to be privileged guardians of an important underground tradition of subversive thought, one which they maintain as a discreet, enlightened, revolutionary elite during times of oppression. This idea was presented almost word for word by a keynote speaker at the Renewing the Anarchist Tradition conference in 2008, for example. Um, it's also significant that today's anarchist intellectuals generally do not cite indigenous women scholars such as Audra Simpson, for example, when they are mounting their compelling arguments against the state. Theirs are not the code words for belonging. Rather, anarchist activists and scholars who are interested in questions of sovereignty often prefer to peruse the work of Carl Schmitt or perhaps Giorgio Agamben, who brackets gender and race entirely as if one can equate human being and male citizen of Rome or France. It, but it's not simply gendered reading habits that marginalize indigenous women's scholars' work, but also the fact that their words are less easily recuperated within the European anarchist tradition, which has already decided that religion is bad and whose model of oppressive power is the state. Many indigenous women activists articulate sovereignty as, quote, an active living process within this knot of human, material, and spiritual relationships bound together by mutual responsibilities and obligations. Audra Simpson, for her part, points out the critical language game involved here. Indigenous mobilizations of sovereignty are useful to signal processes and intents to others in ways that are understandable. These remarks certainly sound different than the definitions of sovereignty advanced by Schmidt or Agamben and critiqued by many anarchists, where sovereignty is always an unmarked yet male fantasy of absolute power via the state apparatus and the practical project of trying to consolidate that power as much as possible. But then again, why should Agamben or Schmidt be granted sovereign jurisdiction over the power of the word? Indigenous women's mobilizations of sovereignty are not necessarily rhetorical, but even when they are, this is where the performative magic happens. 
following their lead, could teach us all something about sovereignty that Schmidt, Agamben, and their anarchist readers fail to notice. European sovereignty has always involved subsuming women and children as the property of male citizens, whereas it is male citizens that are subsumed by the sovereign. And furthermore, the male philosophy slip between legal person and human being in discussions of sovereignty is also preserved in the anarchist rejoinders calling for autonomy, the very construction of autonomy as a concept. It is surely significant that the anarchist person is imagined as an independent, autonomous, and transcendent sovereign being that enters into mutual aid with others of its kind, much like the modern person writ large, the state. And neither is it a coincidence that just as the state characterizes itself as benevolent to its citizens, the anarchist considers himself benevolent to the women similarly subsumed in his autonomy and without whom he could not survive. I'm going to redirect now to briefly discuss the secret society before closing and opening the floor for discussion. There we go. So um, it's clear that in the political and historical imagination corresponding to the majority of conspiracy theory videos on YouTube today, the secret order of the Illuminati is understood to be a truly extraordinary organization uh, that has, among other things, achieved the ends of its historical enemy, the Holy Alliance, or conspiracy of kings. How did the story come to be that the Illuminati are in control of government rather than a group that sought to oppose government power? Why and to whose ends has this confusion come to pass? Uh, my next book project deals with this question, so stay tuned. Uh, for now, I'll just end by suggesting that anti-capitalists of all sorts would do well to tackle the confusion regarding the left and the conspiracy of the kings, uh, the disturbing racialized political imaginaries and allegorical origin stories of capitalism found within the works marked conspiracy theory. Um, those of us that are social scientists should be able to notice and draw out certain valid social commentaries from conspiracy theories for the sake of encouraging potential anti-capitalist sentiments versus uh, fascist ones, for example. I'm going to give one example. Okay, so um, those of us familiar with YouTube know that many videos tell stories of the Knights Templar finding secret treasure under Solomon's temple during Jerusalem during the Crusades, with Illuminati-controlled Freemasons later using it to collapse the great world traditions into one big banking tradition in the name of Lucifer. So yeah, this story certainly differs greatly in exposition from the one told by Karl Polanyi in The Great Transformation, for example, uh, where in global elites um, and others following suit forsake traditional allegiances in the great project of modern banking born of collusion, capitalism, and war. Uh, social scientists will always prefer to highlight systemic forces rather than the whimsy of a few powerful knights and Freemasons, not to mention a few relatives of the Rothschild family as per the prevalent anti-Semitic version. Um, the popular story is much more allegorical than any academic account, but it shouldn't take too much imagination to see how the conspiracist narrative differs from orthodox academic accounts more in form than in content. And therefore, how some conspiracy buffs could arguably become interested in anti-capitalism uh, instead of fascism if we made the effort to engage them in constructive dialogue. Even the lizards thing kind of makes sense if you 
think of the long cultural tradition of referring to the aristocracy as blue-blooded, you know. Um, these things are allegories in many ways. So rather than disdaining from a distance the millions of people who fear an Illuminati-controlled new world order, perhaps we might engage in substantive argument with them, uh, using some of the alternative facts provided here, among other possible rhetorical tools. In these discussions, it might be constructive to admit how the new neoliberal world order is indeed controlled by conspiring elites and focus our critical attention on how these elites are not specifically Jewish, nor lizards, nor associated with the Illuminati. Um, and at the same time, we might, point out how it's, we might point out how it serves the real blue-blooded people in power to have us believe that they are. We might even explore in the process how both dominant voices in the media and their conspiracy theorist critics likewise make use of occult arts of memory, such as seductive geometries and moving combinations of images to compel their publics, and thus how the hermetic tradition continues to inform both right and left in the 21st century, albeit not in the way some conspiracy theorists might suspect. The pantheism explored here may equally inspire the fantasies of fascism and the anarchist faith in the egalitarian social order. We would be wise to not ignore it, because now, as during the 19th century, as during the Renaissance period, the Hermetica proves adaptable to a variety of projects, including both pyramid and leveling schemes, as well as pyramid schemes for leveling, as above, so below. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Erica, for this inspiring, this uh, thought-provoking uh, talk. Uh, before opening the floor, let me just uh, make use of my privilege as, as chair to ask uh, one question. Uh, I think, I think the, you know, kind of you very convincingly revealed that contemporary forms of anarchism, uh, often explicitly atheists, are actually rooted in a spiritual kind of basis that reverberated through history, through revolutionary voices. But my question then would be, how is this more than just history, right? Um, or like if, if you kind of, for, for, for anarchists themselves, like what are they to gain from taking your criticism or your critical intervention serious? What would they gain by kind of acknowledging not just this history, but maybe reconceptualize anarchism more uh, fundamentally by making use of, of what you have kind of uh, uh, told us about during this, uh, this talk. Yes, like, um, well, yeah, I'm sort of deconstructing anarchism. The idea is, um, I'm hoping that by illustrating effectively, if I've managed to do so at all, that anarchism still contains and acts upon certain cosmological presumptions about how the universe and therefore human society is organized, that they will then um, be able to interact with people who are likewise concerned about and act against neoliberal capitalism, mining projects, and all those practical things that, that exist. Um, who do not, who come to it from a different set of theoretical and cosmological precepts. 
So maybe the people involved in a certain social movement, uh, they do not all share uh, certain I similar ideas and theories in the sense of no gods, no masters, and you know the state is the most important thing to think about, and certain kind of things that characterize the way uh, anarchists thought. But they, they can be effective collaborators nonetheless, and that maybe the anarchists could interact with them in a way that's more, I won't say respectful, but I'll say... Um, you know, egalitarian, rather than acting as if they are the purveyors of insight and are there to teach others how to um, challenge capitalism, maybe they can really get involved in these transnational social movements, um, you know, as, as sort of as equals, you know. But I do realize that by the time I'm done, I've sort of deconstructed anarchism to the extent where it's like, I don't even know if I want to be part of it anymore. <laughs> okay. Ah, yes, sir, over there. Uh, so, reading really you're saying that the revolutionary, it's like, I'm just reading the revolutionary, yeah, the revolutionary used uh, spiritualism and all this kind of stuff in order as tools to convey their ideas. But that was in that's historical Pacific. People had a lot of spiritual ideas in that time, so they knew what they, they were up against and what they had to use in order to get through to people. But now we have something, the other one we haven't really talked about is now we have that social media, and people have a lot of access to a lot of information from different sources. And so, how do you think that's going to affect the future? Um, and going on to about white males and the main body of the white males are the main body of industrial workers. So therefore their voices were obviously the voices at the time. And now the world is changing and we are moving towards uh, different genders, more females, non-white. And obviously their discourses will now bubble up through the ether, through society. So that will change naturally through that way. Explain about Okay. We'll take questions in Paris. Is that so? Sure, yeah, I'll take two or three. Uh, yeah, over there. Uh, okay. Um, I suppose just following on from that question, uh, I, I, after your talk, um, I kind of now think, oh, I knew I was an I've always been an anarchist because I have always had a sort of spiritual side and I think that's something that is very rarely spoke about in anarchism, that, that sort of um, spiritual side. So, but I've always put that down to class, to, my, to me being working class and me being a working class woman. And I've always thought that in the anarchist movement, obviously that, that sort of... Uh, magical thinking which has been passed down to me through other working class women um, was about 
you know, my class and my gender. But I'm, perhaps now I'm thinking about it in a different way. Perhaps, um, you know, the, the stuff that I was brought up with, you know, the ghosts of the past, because the past has always been important in working class life. And those ghosts of the past that come and visit us and learn and teach us about, you know, our situations and about class struggle, perhaps um, there's a place of that in anarchism. So I think I'm, I th I'm, I'm, I'm disagreeing with you now. <laughs> Erica, I feel more of an anarchist now. <laughs> so thank you. Erica. Yeah. Um, okay. Um... Well, the first, I'm not, I think, it's not simply that people were using the language of religion and spirituality as a tool to convey their idea. I think in some cases that's true. And so far as um, Christianity or whatever is the sort of lingua franca of the time and, and is the moral discourse that people then use that in order to then make their point. If they speak in that idiom, then they'll get people to listen. So um, in some cases, speaking in spiritual or religious terms might have been instrumental in that way. But part of what I'm saying is quite different than that, that it was people's spiritual or religious leanings in the first place that inspired them to action or that gave them hope and the possibility of a different kind of future. So, well, yeah, yeah, um, but they are, they are different, right? Um, they, they, they may work together and it may be hard to kind of tease them out in actual practice, but there, there's different ways of, of articulating it. Um, now, we could, similarly, we could say, again, another chicken and egg scenario, perhaps we could say that, oh, anarchism reflects the interests of white males because it was white males that were making up the idea. That is sort of a nutshell, um, you know, a summary of what I'm saying. Yeah, well, yeah, you know. Well, they had, access, they had access to the public sphere and the tools for which they could make their, their, their ideas known. Um, I don't know about social media. This is a, like a huge topic, of course. Um, I don't know how much the fact that you know, women or people of color uh, now, because of the fact that we are involved in wage work um, in the formal public sphere and informal economics, that, that means that we will naturally end up having a voice. So the past hundred years has not necessarily suggested it's as simple as that. Um, and certainly as far as social media goes, while in theory there's, this certain, there's a certain discourse that says, oh, well, it's, it's democratizing knowledge. We all have access to it now. But if you look at how people interact on social media, um, you can see that it tends to remain um, white men and you know um, who who talk a lot and the rest of us listen. I actually brought here. I don't know if I'll actually end up reading them out, but the comment threads about my book are hilarious. Um, you know, I, I say, "Oh, hey, everybody, here's my." Actually, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because it's just too good. Um, I'm like, "Hey, everybody, my book's out. Yay, like me," you know, and. Um, I do get a lot of little stickers and happy faces and likes, which makes me very happy. And then I get these guys, right, who are like, do you go into questions of this or that? Do you, you know, uh, uh, what is this one? Here's my favorite. I'm working on something very similar to this. Uh, wait, no, by the sounds of it, 
I'm working on the polar opposite of this, uh, using similar sources with the opposite argument. Very interesting. Um, the, the tradition, this is like multiple comments in a row. The tradition on which these groups are based is kept secret and passed down through initiation in secret societies. The tradition itself can be used either way. You are left with a choice. I don't see the choices made by the Illuminati as being compatible with the anarchists, rather quite the opposite. Question, for example, what traditions are you using? Do you speak of those within the tradition that are acting opposed to anarchism? Do you consider Rothbardianism anarchism? Are the secret nation of initiation and obligation to secrecy through oaths compatible with anarchism or not? I am uninitiated, initiate of sorts. Self-styled and with no obligations to anyone. Self-styled and with no obligations to anyone, though who has attained the Holy Grail as espoused by the, as espoused by the tradition. Why, I ask, in your sense, what is the tradition itself encouraging you to do? The tradition itself is a personal liberation philosophy. It goes on. Okay, maybe I'll stop because it goes on and on and on. And then he goes. He finishes it by saying, um, you know. Um, I think you were maybe missing a piece of the puzzle I could help you with. Shoot me a message. <laughs> I write back, I'm like, maybe you should just, maybe you should read the book. You know? Like, I mean, I'm being a bit facetious, but I'm not. I think this is, you know, this is relevant to your question. It's like the entitlement that um, some people feel based on their experience uh, in the world um, to... Uh, act like this is is incredible, um, and so you know anyone, you know, uh, yeah, whatever. I think I'll just leave it there. I think I think that pretty much answers the question about social media. Um, it's the it's very difficult to part to participate in social media. You, be, you want to be a a woman uh, making any kind of feminist um, statement on social media, you get immediately um, attacked. You know, and it's it's hard to even just stick your neck out at all. So. In one way, it's leveling and it's democratizing. In another way, it really is not. Um, um, yeah, and about um, yeah, there. You know, while in the 19th century um, or the early 20th century, what was the quote? The scratch a spiritualist, and you'll find an anarchist. Said C. L. James, right? Um, you can almost say the opposite now as well. You can say, scratch an anarchist and you'll find a spiritualist. This is, you know, the, it's become, it's taboo, it's a bit stigmatized. The question of religion and spirituality is taboo among the left because, oh, it's not quite orthodox. We know that it's not necessarily looked well upon or it's heretical in some way. But yet, there are many people that are involved in these movements who, if given space, and um, will actually start talking about how they do come to these spaces for religious or spiritual reasons and inspiration. And this is something that has become obvious to me because I'm the person that, you know, is writing this book. I'm talking about it, and people will come to me all the time and be like, "Oh yeah, you know, I I'm into alchemy, or I'm into theosophy, or I'm into this, or I'm a Christian anarchist," and I'm continually getting this all the time. And and yet, when the same people are in a meeting talking about, you know, what should we, how should we organize the blockade next week, they, will, they won't necessarily talk about it in the public sphere of anarchism per se, because it's sort of taboo within that specific space. So partly what I'm trying to do is to break that down a little bit, because, um, yeah, we end up thinking that, oh, I'm the only one, or that maybe this is because of a particular identity or background I have, maybe because it's, I'm, I'm a working class or I'm a woman, or maybe it's because I come from um, X, Y, Z, ethnic uh, situation, or, you know, we end up reading it through that lens when, um, yeah, it's not necessarily the case. Okay, hit me.
Yes, over there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, can I follow on from Dr. Palkman's question? Uh, what's your kind of practical message to, like, atheist anarchists who are committed to anti-racism and feminism and the decolonial project, but also to materialist empiricism and kind of commit, are committed to opposing religion not only as a tool of class and patriarchal domination, but also kind of along human lines as something that kind of is a roadblock to human enlightenment and also kind of maybe along a Nietzschean one of just general human flourishing. Uh, so like how can we kind of balance secularism with, uh, in anarchism with a sort of non-patronizing inclusion of like I don't know, indigenous activists and religious comrades as well? And the lady over there in the back. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed the, um, the presentation and I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, I was wondering whether you make a distinction between, uh, maybe it's, it's a, a different way of putting the, the previous question, between spirituality and organized religion in your work and, and whether if you make that kind of distinction, whether it makes a difference in the way in which uh, the anarchist cosmology through this spiritual trip that you have taken us, it's different from organized uh, religion of any type. I'm afraid you have to be short because we're We're running out of time. time. Ah, okay. Um, Okay, so... uh, Okay, so first I would say that... um, Maybe one one way. This isn't going to, you know, address every other every possible problem. But one thing that people could do would be when they're trying to organize something. You know, presuming that the the idea at any given moment is to try and there's a particular project we're trying to do. We're trying to stop this austerity politics or stop this mine being built or block this highway. You know, with a practical problem. So when we're organizing to um, achieve something, I would say to try to refrain from authorizing one's position with reference to like anarchist patriarchs. This is one thing that people could do. So you don't need to, it doesn't need, you don't even need to talk about, um, you know, one of the ways that people, my dissertation is about this, one of the ways that people try to make it inclusive is to like uh, have anti-oppression workshops and have people based on different identities stack the speakers list and there's that whole um, route which has one way. But one thing that can be done that's fairly simple is like when you're trying to argue for a specific course of action, don't do it by saying like, well, because Malatesta did this, you know, a hundred years ago, um, it's going to work. And you're acting like an anti-organizationalist, and I'm an organizer, and all of a sudden it's about you know Malatesta versus Kropotkin or something, and it's really ironic. Um, I find whenever this happens because it's like, okay, anarchists are supposed to be anti-authoritarian, but they're authorizing themselves with reference to the specific tradition rather than like dealing with the situation at hand without realizing the irony in what they're doing. Um, when I, I, I write this essay and, uh, you know, 
I get, it went through multiple rounds of review for a few different reasons because we changed presses and all these things. Oh, I want to show this here. Everyone, these are the references, by the way. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue. But So the first one is to the book that's being sold outside. But those of you who are academics, you might be interested in the second one, which is the peer-reviewed academic version of the same paper, which is the one you want to cite if you're being an academic. Um, and so, yeah, that's the one that went through multiple rounds of review. And, of course, reviewer two was, like, um, ruthless as usual and says, oh, yeah, this is great, except you haven't cited, you know, Agamben, Schmidt, Simon Critchley, Ket lists of, like, these white male philosophers and anarchist guys. I'm like, did you not read the paper, you know? Um, and so that's one thing that I would say. It's not a full answer to your question, but it's one thing I would suggest. It's something very practical that I could suggest. Um, as far as spirituality versus organized religion... Um, yeah, this is one one way that people kind of resolve this problem sometimes. They're saying, okay, well, look, spirituality is okay, but religion, no, because religion we're going to associate with like powerful institutions like the Catholic Church, which of course have done very uh, oppressive things, and we don't want to be okay with that. But then, given my research in uh, Mexico, this it's, it's just doesn't deal with it as simply as we'd like necessarily, because, for example, um, you know, when so often it happens, you'll have these anarchist types from Europe or North America going down to Mexico. They want to, you know, meet the Zapatistas and the inspiring indigenous leaders and stuff, and they're looking for something that's really, you know, authentically indigenous. And, you know, when the people start, indigenous people start talking about, you know, river spirits and things like that oh it's a bit uncomfortable but we'll let it pass because it's it's indigenous and it's spiritual and it's okay but if the same people start talking about you know the virgen de guadalupe who was the anyway in the first slide um well that's christian and that's not okay and so um just sort of the what people do with christianity is not necessarily what the Catholic Church does with Christianity. So it, maybe it's okay to like use the category of spirituality versus religion to kind of um, express that we accept some kinds of spirituality and not others, but then we have to be careful about how we mobilize those categories and who we exclude with them and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I guess we're going to close. Yeah, we're close. But I'll just, before, before I say goodbye, I do want to mention, um, I, I'm glad I remembered to put up the slide so you have the references. The last one is my um, dissertation. So if you enjoyed this at all, then please do have a look at the full dissertation. Um, it's not out in book form yet. It will be. Um, but the dissertation itself is written in a legible and accessible manner, um, and it can be downloaded at the website at the bottom. And in this work, I study anarchist social movements in the present day to present an ethnography of the social life of the intersectionality concept, uh, where we explore how the black feminist challenge of intersectionality is unfortunately all too often recuperated within the logic of neoliberal property relations and self-making projects. Um, so that's my big work, and I want everyone to know about it. And besides the text itself, um, I will be coming back to give another public lecture on this work next semester. The lecture will be called The Poverty of Intersectionality, so uh, come check that one out if you're interested, because I do a better job than Slavoj Žižek and Jordan Peterson combined, obviously. Um, <laughs> You know. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.